Daybreak Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barton in Washington. Today is Tuesday, January 3rd. And here are some of the stories we are covering. Former President Obasanjo's endorsement throws a murky range in next month's Nigeria presidential election. Nigeria could be a two-term president, but for us in our state, Obasanjo is a political preparation. If Obasanjo even backs the councillor, the councillor will lose. Because the man has no political foundation in the federal government. Norma returns to South Sudan's Greater Pibor administrative area following clashes between an armed militia and young people. Botswana's main opposition party condemns an arrest warrant against exiled former President Ian Kama. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI lies in state at St. Peter's Basilica. An analyst says a 20-year jail sentence is a blessing in disguise for 46 Ivorian soldiers in Mali. I think the memorandum of understanding that was signed included the idea that the soldiers, because there was a legal proceeding against them, will be tried and sentenced and then after release. And Cameroon officials issued thousands of birth certificates to children who are missing out on an education because they lack the document. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. A spokesperson for the Presidential Campaign Council of Nigeria's ruling All Progressives Congress Party says the APC is not worried about former President Olusegun Obasanjo's endorsement of Labour Party presidential candidate Peter Obi in the February 25th presidential elections. Bayo Onanunga says Obasanjo's recommendation has no electoral value for Nigerians, especially voters from the former president's home state of Ogun. His letter of support, former President Obasanjo, Sanjo urged young Nigerians to come together and bring about a meaningful change. He said Nigerians have moved from the frying pan to the fire and from the mountain top to the valley in the last seven and a half years. APC Presidential Council spokesperson Onanunga tells me only foreigners view former President Obasanjo as important, but to Nigerians in Nigeria, the former president is a political paper tiger. Well, we have issued our preliminary reaction. As I said, the investment is of no consequence. It is worthless. Politically, it is nothing because the man who gave it doesn't have much electoral value. So as far as I'm concerned, the investment is just a kind of a, a show, meaning nothing. So we are not troubled at all. Because when Mr. Tingu was campaigning to win the common election, he never visited Obasanjo. We never saw this uh, Obasanjo's uh, endorsement. His endorsement, as far as I'm concerned, for all intents and purposes, it's of no meaning to our party. It's worthless. So it's not something that we are going to lose sleep over or can you lose sleep over. Does it not concern your campaign that uh, this might reflect that uh, Mr. Peter Obe is the most preferred candidate if the former president, two-time president, can endorse him? No, 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 no. The, the irony of Obama's position is that we go by our history. When he came back, to run as a civilian president, he didn't get the support of the Southwest, where he hails from. And he took some kind of uh, uh, cajoleries, some chicaneries, some subtle blackmail to get the support the second time around. That is how he was able to win this, his second time, because he found that he was losing support and he had to run back to his base to beg for support. And he paid back those who supported him in back coin. Mr. Tinubu did not fall for that kind of uh, tactics. 
he returned it because it was only one that was succeeded in winning back his election. All those politicians in the South West who supported Obanjo, in fact, tomorrow they are regretting lending new support. So let me tell you something. In the Southwest, West, Mr. Obanjo is always seen as somebody always swimming against the popular sentiments of the, of the, of the zone. Always. He's always against it. If the Southwest is moving to the right, politically, Obanjo will move to the left. If the Southwest is going to the, south, to the left, he will move to the right. He's never in sync with our people. Always opposed to whatever our people stand for. In fact, at the time, people thought that maybe this man is not going to Obama, that his son is, he comes from another part of the country. Because he's always, always opposed to popular sentiments in the region. So, as far as I'm concerned, here he could be a, a two-term president, uh, but for us, in our state, one from the state, from the state, from the man with the man, Obasanjo is a political paperweight. So, I'm not surprised, as you said in our statement, if Obasanjo even backs the councillor, the councillor will lose because the man has no political foundation in the state of Ogun, where he comes from. We'll talk about the entire status. You see, you foreigners are people who think the man is important. You are calling so much reverence as a Nigerian, but internally in our country, Mr. Albertine has a nobody. They know what it stands for. So how would you describe the campaign of uh, your candidate? I mean, how is it going? Our campaign has gone on very well. On the 4th of January, we are going to Kano, uh, where we hope to address uh, millions of votes. We have campaigned in many states, over 16 states now. We have done many town hall meetings, and uh, we have all manners of uh, endorsements here and there by people who have political votes. Uh, we've gotten many endorsements that uh, we think by the time we vote on 25 February, we are not just simply going to win. We are going to win with a wide margin that even... Peter Obi and his backer in Abeokuta. We know that the man who gave him the backing is just waiting his time. Bayo Onanunga is the spokesperson for the Presidential Campaign Council of Nigeria's ruling All Progressives Congress Party, the APC. You are speaking with me from Nigeria's capital, Abuja. The main opposition, Botswana Patriotic Front, or PBF Party, has condemned the warrant seeking to arrest exiled former President Saresi Kama Ian Kama. The BPF contends that the charges against the former president are politically motivated and meant to prevent Kama from participating in the coming 2024 general election. The former president faces charges including illegal possession of firearms and money laundering, allegations he dismisses. Begi Butale is the leader of the main opposition Botswana Patriotic Front Party. He tells viewers Peter Clotted that civil society must pressure the administration in Habaruni to ensure political tolerance, respect for human rights, and freedom of expression as enshrined in the Constitution. We as the Botswana Patriotic Front believe that the government of President Masisi is using the judiciary to settle personal scores. And um, this Realization comes in the wake of him confessing to one of the kings in Botswana that he controls the court of appeal and, by implication, the lower courts in the country. What actually happened was that a magistrate um, issued this arrest warrant after it was alleged that the former president did not turn up for mention. Now, people must understand that um, he is innocent until proven guilty. We also believe that this is a trumped-up charge, that he, he was in possession of weapons of war without a license. Why do you think this is a trumped-up charge? Because 
a legitimate search warrant was issued. His house was searched. The weapons were allegedly found on his property. No license. So why is this uh, a trumped-up charge, some people ask? What actually happened was that the matter went to the highest court of the land, the Court of Appeal. And a day before the court was supposed to give judgment, the um, intelligence agency um, went to court and asked for the matter to be withdrawn because the government had taken him to court, you know, wanting to search his house. The Court of Appeal refused because the intelligence agencies had somehow found out that the case was against them. So when the Court of Appeal refused to withdraw the matter, the intelligence agencies, without a court order, went and searched the former president's house in his absence. And whatever weapons that were found there, nobody knows whether they came with them or not. That is the gist of, of the matter. Now, so, so where do you go from here? People say they expect your party to issue such press release about your opposition to the arrest warrant issued against the former president because he is your patron, he is your supporter. And people are saying that if he is not guilty, he should go through the judicial process of Botswana because the judicial process of Botswana has proven over the years to be independent, they argue. The judiciary of Botswana on the whole is independent, but we have pockets, pockets of magistrates, pockets of judges of the high court that are in the pocket of the government. And we are not overly worried because very soon the former president will um, appeal uh, this arrest warrant because it is not only unprocedural, but we believe it is also illegal. He will appeal this um, arrest warrant and have it overturned. You'll remember, Peter, that the government had accused the former president of stealing 10 billion, not million, 10 billion US dollars. The matter went to court and the chief justice of Botswana said that the government had fabricated evidence. The current government of Botswana is, you know, successfully decimating everything good about this country that had been developed by the previous leaders. Biggie Butale is the leader of the main opposition Botswana Patriotic Front Party. He was speaking with viewers Peter Claude from the capital, Habaruni. A political analyst says he believes the decision of a court in Mali to sentence 46 Ivorian soldiers to 20 years in prison is the beginning of their eventual release. Senegalese political analyst Ibrahim Akan says the decision is in line with a memorandum of understanding signed December 22nd this year in Bamako between the two countries which calls for the soldiers' release. Ivory Coast President Alassane Ouattara in his New Year speech expressed confidence the soldiers would eventually be freed. The economic community of West African states ECOWAS had called for the unconditional release of the Ivorian soldiers being held in Mali since July last year. Mali's military-led government rejected ECOWAS's demand for their reprieve, saying that the issue is a bilateral one between Mali and Ivory Coast. Ibrahim Makan tells me the next step will be for military leader Asimi Guita to pardon the soldiers. I think it was a way of finding solution to the problem. I think the memorandum of understanding that was signed included the idea that the the soldiers, because there was a legal proceeding against them, will be tried and sentenced and then after release. One of the reasons being the fact that the legal process started and it could not be stopped simply because there was a political agreement between the different actors. They included that idea of the trial and the sentencing and the decision. 
And now we are all waiting for the president of the junta either to uh, decide to send them back to Côte d'Ivoire or to look at a legal proceeding that will allow them to give them a kind of, uh, we call it uh, droit de grâce in French, where the president can just decide to release them and to abandon all the, the sentence and everything against them. And to be frank with you, if uh, Côte d'Ivoire had started this kind of conversation with Mali, we would have not been at this point because the, at that time they would have found a solution to the problem without trying to force the junta to do something that they didn't want to do. So this is why, because I was reading the Ivorian papers uh, Monday morning and uh, President Ouattara sounded confident that the, uh, the soldiers will be released. Definitely, yes, they will be. And I think the process was already defined in the Memorandum of Understanding that was uh, adopted, uh, signed between the two countries. Because I think, you know, from the beginning, the Malian wanted a political solution to this problem. The Ivorian refused that political solution and felt that uh, by uh, involving ECOWAS, by involving other actors like the UN, they would have uh, gotten the, the release of the people. But that was not the case, so they had to find another way of uh, really compromising with uh, the junta in Mali. Does ECOWAS have any role in this? Because, I mean, let's admit the military junta in Mali is under ECOWAS sanctions. People were expecting that maybe ECOWAS should do something. Well, you know, the decision during the last summit suggesting that ECOWAS may be sanctioning Mali, for me, it was a surprise to me because, uh, one, ECOWAS' role is to really help defining good relationship between member states, finding a solution where member states are in difficulties, rather than deciding to find a solution for one member state against the other one. It would have not worked, and uh, ECOWAS is not designed to really deal with those kind of issues. That was, for me, the surprise. And... Now, you see, just after that uh, statement made in the decision uh, in December, a political decision was found because uh, if you look at the size and the quality of the delegation of Côte d'Ivoire that traveled to Mali, you realize that Côte d'Ivoire now came to the solution that, yes, this requires a political decision and let's go for it. Ibrahima, thank you so much. Uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for your analysis. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, and thank you very much for inviting me to your program. Ibrahim Makan is a Senegalese political analyst. You are speaking with me from the capital, Dakar. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I am James Barton. Washington. Today is Tuesday, January 3rd. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Authorities in the Greater Pibor administrative area of South Sudan say normalcy has returned to the area. This after last deadly clashes between the armed militia men, known as the White Army, from neighboring Jonglea State and youth in Pibor.
The information minister in Pibor says the attackers have started to voluntarily withdraw from the areas, adding that the death toll has risen to 72 from both sides of the fighting. Deng Gadeng has details for VOA from Boer, South Sudan. A group of armed militiamen known as the White Army invaded and launched several attacks last week in parts of Greater Pibor administrative area. The militants are suspected of having crossed from the neighboring Jangle state. Local authorities say the deadly intercommunal clutches have left dozens of people dead, homes burned, livestock stolen and tens of thousands displaced from their homes. Abraham Kelang, the information minister in the Greater Pibor administrative area, confirms that that come has returned after the armed youth voluntarily withdrew from the region. The security situation now has become normal because uh, fighting started in Gumuruk is currently uh, down a bit and those attackers, they went back still on their way. I don't know exactly the place uh, is staying, but uh, currently they are gone. I had yesterday some of them they reached uh, Jongole and some of them still on the road, on the way. And uh, Morley's community is still in the borderland. Kalang says the death toll from the both sides of the clutches has risen to 72. He says more than 42,000 people that have been displaced by the fighting are in need of humanitarian assistance. Figure I have at uh, that time, I just uh, reported uh, 56, but the now adding uh, uh, 72. But it's still is, we are searching to collect all the things. Okay. Because they are now including also women, their death. So that is uh, adding to be uh, 72. Total of number displaced from uh, two counties, uh, which is uh, Gumuru County in general, Old Payam, and Kongor uh, Payam in Lekwangule County, uh, 7,716 households, and 42,440 uh, individual personnel. Kelang says some internally displaced people who have fled the conflict in Gumruk and Lekwangule, including women and children, have arrived in Pibor town. He says some are children at schools and others in open places in hedge weather conditions. They are lacking a lot of things because uh, person they are coming in one place to another place. They are lacking um, food material, uh, food security needed, and also uh, humanitarian assistance. We need to assist in others within the palace. Uh, uh, a lot of things. Also. Uh, we inform NGOs, but uh, currently we didn't see uh, what are NGOs done to this. Uh, community. But we are still engaging the community NGOs to do something. In a joint statement last week, members of the international community, including the UNMIS, AUMIS, EGAT, the Troika, EU and RJMEC, called on South Sudanese leaders to urgently intervene to stop the fighting in Pibor. They also want leaders to ensure the safety and security of civilians, as well as unimpeded humanitarian access to people affected by the fighting. They also emphasized the need to investigate and hold accountable all perpetrators of the conflict, including those who are instigating and inciting violence and those responsible for the abduction of women and children. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs says vulnerable people in South Sudan continue to suffer the cumulative and compounding effects of years of social and political instability, food insecurity and climate-related shocks such as flooding. 
Ocha says the ongoing conflict, including violence at the subnational level, has impacted thousands of people in 2022, leading to multiple displacements, loss of lives and livelihoods. The UN agency says that this has also exacerbated people's chronic vulnerabilities and mounting needs for life-saving humanitarian assistance and protection. In 2023, a projected 9.4 million people in South Sudan will need humanitarian assistance and protection, as will nearly 3 million people who are expected to face physical violence, including rape and other forms of gender-based violence. Protracted displacement has affected over 2.2 million people who are not able to return to their homes. For VOA News, I am Deng Guiding in Bor. The faithful have been lining up at St. Peter's Basilica to pay their respects to Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, where he is lying in state. Some waited for hours on Monday before the doors finally opened. Benedict's body will be on public display for mourners until today. Benedict was Pope from April 2005 until February 2013. He made history as the first pontiff in 600 years to retire while in office. He resigned because he said his health impaired his ability to serve as the head of the Catholic Church. For more on Benedict's papacy, viewers Vincent Mancuri spoke with David Gibson, director of the Center on Religion and Culture at Fordham University in New York City. Pope Benedict XVI made an unexpectedly close connection with the people of Africa. Look, as you said, he came in after 26 years almost of uh, Pope John Paul II, the Polish Pope who made Africa a special focus of his pontificate. John Paul II traveled at least once a year to Africa and visited dozens of countries. Pope Benedict was a German cardinal, a theologian, very older and very uh, academic and scholarly. He was not expected to travel much or to connect with the African continent. But he did make two trips to Africa, visited three countries, Benin, Cameroon, and, um, and Angola. And he really, he, he made that connection, I think, that personal connection. But there were three particular things, I think, that Benedict did that endeared him and made him an important figure to the continent. One is that he had a great focus on the environment. Benedict was actually known as the Green Pope for his advocacy on environmental issues and things that are really uh, so critical to the continent. He was also um, known as uh, uh, he was also very outspoken on social justice issues and economic yeah. justice. He was known as a conservative, mm -hmm. but he was very outspoken, very liberal even in our context on that. And thirdly, he appointed a lot of Africans as cardinals and bishops and in critical positions in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Well, uh, having been the first one in uh, 600 years or more to step aside, uh, did he in some way actually uh, create a precedent for future popes, for the current pope, for instance? He did, absolutely. Benedict, again, known as a conservative, did one of the most innovative things in centuries by resigning. And he made way, again, he made way for Francis, a pope from Argentina, from Buenos Aires. Um, that was, that has proved to be a prophetic move, shifting the, the image and, and balance of power in the church from Europe, which Benedict Joseph Ratzinger represented, 
to the southern hemisphere, Africa, Asia, Latin America. And what the death of Benedict XVI really opens a door for is for Pope Francis to resign and retire at some point, which I fully expect him to do. Francis is 86 years old now, and he said he would like to retire, but he did not want to retire while Benedict was alive. Mm -hmm. The retirement of Pope Francis could open the door, perhaps, to an African pope. That was Mancoli, Vincent Mancoli, speaking with David Gibson at Fordham University in New York City. Gibson is the author of The Rule of Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI and his battle with the modern world. And that's it for this Tuesday, January 3rd edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for joining us this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barton, Washington, wishing you 